Welcome to Tax Notes Talk, a podcast from Tax Notes, the leading source of tax news, information, and analysis. Welcome to the podcast. I'm David Stewart, Editor-in-Chief of Tax Notes Today International. This week, Reviewer Review. We're returning to an issue that we covered in the past to see how things have played out since our episode last August on the Treasury Agreement with the Office of Management and Budget to subject tax regulations to additional review. Now that we've seen that process in action, Tax Notes Today federal reporter Jonathan Curry and Tax Notes Today international senior legal reporter Andrew Velarde are here to tell us what happened. Andrew, Jonathan, welcome back. Thanks, Dave. It's good to be here. Always good to be back in the studio. Jonathan, why don't we start with you on just some general background on this review that OMB does. Sure. So this is a review that's been in place for a little over a year now. What happened is that OIRA, which is the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs, they're an office within the Office of Management and Budget, which is within the White House. They signed an agreement with the Treasury Department back in April 2018. That's called a Memorandum of Agreement. That's what it's commonly known as, at least. And essentially what this did is it gave, it formalized more authority for OMB to review tax regulations. And it included basically three prongs. There was a novel legal policy prong that could trigger a review by OIRA. There is an economically significant prong, and then there is another one where if a regulation treasury is coming up with affects another agency, like, say, the Department of, I don't know, Housing and Urban Development or something like that, then that would also trigger a review by OIRA as well. And, you know, OIRA had reviewed tax regulations in the past, but it was very, very few and far between. With this, even though the language doesn't necessarily change a whole lot from what was, you know, previously in place, it did sort of signal that there was going to be a shift. And what that's what we've seen a lot of. You know, we had the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act enacted at the end of 2017, and that was then, you know, followed by this MOA, as we know, the Memorandum of Agreement just a few months later. And so with that, we've started to see a lot of these new tax regulations related to the big tax bill, tax law, the, the TCGA. A lot of these tax regulations have been going through a review by OIRA. If I recall correctly, there were some concerns about this MOA on additional review at OIRA. So we had some concerns over politicization, basically the idea that, you know, when OIRA receives these draft regulations from Treasury for review, they can shop these around with other agencies behind the scenes, either, you know, federal agencies or it could be the White House. And, you know, that could then, in theory, you could have someone from the White House say, oh, I don't like that provision. Make sure you strike that out or something like that. There's also concerns over delays. You know, we just had this mammoth new tax legislation take effect, the TCGA, and people wanted to know how they're supposed to comply with this. There's a whole lot of new provisions in this. In the MOA, the uh, agreement between Treasury and OIRA, OIRA typically has 10 days to review TCGA-related actions and then 45 days for non-TCGA-related tax regulations. But also, you know, as part of the delay issue, Treasury now needs to produce more analysis for this, for especially for the economically significant ones. They need to really beef up their economic analysis that they submit to OIRA for review. They also need to do a lot more more lengthier explanations of provisions as well, like in the preamble of their regulations, you know, explaining alternatives and things like that. There's also some concerns that this was basically unnecessary. OIRA wouldn't have the same tax expertise as Treasury does. They're also only having maybe 10 days to review a tax regulation that Treasury's been working on for months, maybe even years. So how much value can they really add to the process at that point? They haven't really been able to be really well-versed in the issues. Now, on the other hand, proponents of this new process would say that it establishes greater accountability over the, the tax regulations that 
that Treasury issues. The White House and the administration and, and lawmakers have been, were involved in the sausage making process of this as they're drafting it and bringing it all the way to enactment. And, you know, the things that they envision, they want to see take effect in the regulations that Treasury issues. There's also some thought that it could better align Treasury's rulemaking with more established procedural norms and also make it easier for maybe a layman to understand. I mean, tax regulations are never going to be a, a fun read necessarily, but you can make it so that it's a little bit less technical. And that's been one of the goals is to make it, make the preambles, for example, a little easier to understand. Well, you can speak for yourself on regulations not being a fun read, but we'll move on. So where do things stand now? There have been some changes, at least on paper here. There's a bit of a leadership shuffle at OIRA. The administrator, Naomi Rao, recently left. Uh, she was nominated to replace Brett Kavanaugh on the D.C. Circuit Court. They also lost a particularly prominent advisor, Kristen Hickman. She's a University of Minnesota Law School professor. And she's been a longstanding critic. I mean, well before this process took place, she's been one of the, sort of the preeminent critics of Treasury's administrative practices and trying to sort of hone in on that. And so she came on for a, a one-year stint to advise OIRA as, as they were getting this new agreement and the, these new procedures off the ground. There's been a little bit of a shift at OMB as well. Mick Mulvaney, he's the OMB director. He's also wearing another hat as the acting chief of staff for President Trump, which I imagine takes up a bit of time. And so we're not really quite sure how hands-on he is with Treasury and OMB and, and this agreement here. But initially, he was reported to be a pretty strong advocate of getting this agreement with Treasury. Now, when Hickman left, I had a sort of an exit interview with her, and she gave me some interesting information. She told me Paul Ray, he's now the acting administrator of OIRA. He worked closely with Naomi Rao on the tax review process. And also she told me that senior counsel Rosario Palmieri, also from OIRA, she told me he's all in on this process as well. And I think to me that suggests there's going to be continuity here. Outside some bigger picture changes, maybe a new administration or something like that, I would say that things are looking like they're probably going to kind of continue as normal. And most of the observers I've spoken to, you know, people who are former Treasury or OMB, law professors who have been keeping an eye on this process, they tell me that they think OIRA's process, their beefed up review of tax regulations is here to stay. Support for this podcast is provided by the University of California, Irvine School of Law Graduate Tax Program. The Graduate Tax Program is a one-year full-time program offered at the UC Irvine campus and is ranked as the number one graduate tax program on the West Coast. The program offers students a unique academic experience combining in-depth doctrinal work and practical perspective. All members of the founding faculty have practical experience and have significant experience teaching at other graduate programs. The program is proud of its small student-to-faculty ratio that ensures students get the attention they need to succeed in their studies and their careers. For domestic students and U.S. permanent residents, the deadline to apply is April 1st, 2020. Non-U.S. students must apply by February 1st. Apply today. Visit law.uci.edu slash gradtax. That's law.uci.edu slash gradtax. So do we have any insights onto how OIRA is approaching its review of Treasury regulations? Yeah, that's a great question. That was one of the foremost questions on, on my mind and, and those as well here at Tax Notes. You know, what's actually happening behind the scenes during these reviews? We were able to see on OIRA's website all along, you know, once a tax regulation you know, is at OIRA for review, we'd be able to see a note saying this regulation is under review. And once it was done, we would no longer see it there. But we weren't really able to understand what was happening there. So and we really wanted to get more details on this. Now, last September, I was at an event that was hosted by the Tax Policy Center, where um, a former OIRA administrator, Susan Dudley, she was answering a question about politicization and saying, you know, you don't need to worry about this. If you really want to know what's happening, all you got to do is request these documents called red lines. 
And if you ask for them nicely, they'll give them to you. And that'll tell you what's happening to these documents. Now, I was covering this event on, I think, a Friday. And the following Monday, I was scheduled to go on paternity leave. And so I was like, well, I'll just pass this tidbit along to my colleagues, let them run with it. And maybe in a week or so, we'll have this amazing treasure trove of documents. Andrew, was it that easy? (laughs) Most certainly not. This was a very long, drawn-out saga, which thankfully had a happy ending for us. But what we ended up getting a hold of were draft versions of the regs when they first went to OIRA for review. Initially, it was not clear to us how we would get this information. As Jonathan mentioned, this requirement of OIRA review is essentially entirely new to tax. After asking nicely, uh, that did not actually lead to too many results initially back last fall. I went through FOIA requests to the IRS, to Treasury, and to OIRA itself to obtain these documents. That matter was complicated by the fact that we had a shutdown in between in December and January. This whole process started back in late summer, early fall last year. I've been assured that FOIA is not needed anymore in this process, that we can just make an ask for these documents, but I still find value in the initial FOIAs as nothing was moving in this process before the FOIAs were made. The initial draft regs that we obtained included those for Opportunity Zone, Section 199, Cap A Partnership Deductions, the Salt Deduction Limitation, Transition Tax, Guilty, Beat. More recently, we've also gotten documents on the Section 245 Cap A Dividends Received Deduction, the Participation Exemption Regime, and as well as Final Guilty Guidance. What, what we do perceive from OIRA when we make these asks, they're not red lines. We don't get that. We have to create our own red lines. We get the draft version of the document as I said, that was sent to OIRA before the review, and then we compare that with the publicly released version to see what changed. So these are not what is put out on our website to our subscribers are not official red lines, but red lines we create. We are not seeing a ton of changes from draft to the publicly released version of the regs. It's mostly language tweaks. There are changes to the special analysis section that are more significant. That includes analyzing economic impact, which Jonathan referenced earlier. There will also be a greater call for comments on specific provisions within the guidance. We see more of that in the final released version than what is in the draft versions. I think it's important to note that even now that we've gotten a hold of these drafts, we still don't know who is making the change and why. We can tell there are changes, but it's important not to read too much into it because this is still an iterative process. Even after OIRA finishes its review, there could still be a final last minute tweaks on Treasury before it is publicly released. So are there any changes that they're worth highlighting specifically? Yeah, there are certainly a couple. And I think, Andrew, what he was saying before about how we don't know exactly what these changes, where they stem from, who they stem from, you know, how, why, and all that sort of thing. It's important to keep in mind, but there were certainly a couple, I would say, curious or interesting changes that we saw. For example, in the proposed 199 Cap A regs, in the original draft that we received, real estate agents and brokers were part of the definition of quote, brokerage services, which were denied the pass-through deduction in the original version. Now, in the proposed version that was actually released, real estate agents and brokers were carved out of that definition, which then means that they are eligible for the deduction. Now, again, we need to be careful not to infer too much, but over the previous year, real estate groups had lobby treasury during what we call the Executive Order 12866 meetings. Essentially, these are just the name for meetings that OIRA hosts between treasury officials themselves and any sort of interested party. 
party. It could be a lobbyist. It could be a trade association. It could even be lawmakers, staff, you know, something like that. But real estate groups had lobbied for this. That was in some of the documents that they had submitted. And it's certainly within the realm of possibility that they pressured someone into making the change. But, you know, it could also have just been a drafting error. Maybe there was a time crunch. And as Andrew alluded to before, this is an iterative review process. And maybe they meant to carve out realtors and brokers all along. And they just didn't realize that until they got halfway into the review process. So we don't know why for sure. Broadly speaking, a treasury official told me that it's, quote, common practice for treasury to continue to submit tweaks to a draft while it's still under review. Another one that was interesting, the proposed opportunity zone regulations. uh, That's the first round of them. There's since been a second round of proposed regulations on the opportunity zones. But with this this program, it's just a little bit of background. This is a high-level background, but it allows taxpayers to defer capital gains by investing in qualified opportunity funds. These are aimed at driving investment into low-income areas that are in designated opportunity zones. Now, with the draft regs, we saw that a business that was looking to qualify for the tax preference must have substantially all of the tangible property owned or leased qualify as business property under the statute in order to qualify for this tax benefit. In the draft, substantially all was not defined. However, in the version released to the public, they did add language that defined substantially all as 70%. So they gave it a specific threshold that wasn't there before. Now, this is a pretty seemingly substantial addition to the the regulations. And as I later learned from a former Treasury official that was involved with this guidance, that definition was initially planned to be included in what was termed sidecar guidance that was going to be issued as sub-regulatory guidance after the proposed regs came out. However, OIRA's review stretched on for about six weeks, which is longer than they expected. So Treasury decided to just fold it into the main regulatory package. Have we been seeing any other changes on the regulatory front recently? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, it's, it's not just happening in a vacuum here. It seems like it's certainly part of a shift in Treasury's overall approach to rulemaking. On March 5th, Treasury kind of out of the blue issued a policy statement on the regulatory process that included four main points. Uh, the first was a reaffirmation of their commitment to the no and comment process, a commitment to include a good cause statement when issuing temporary regulations and to abide by other limits. They also said that the statement includes clarifications on the scope of sub-regulatory guidance, and it also includes limits on notices of intent to issue proposed regulations. Now, after this came out of the blue, observers that I spoke with, they were kind of split on just how consequential this really was. So on the one hand, you know, it reaffirmed that Treasury considers its regulations to be interpretive rather than legislative. And what this whole issue comes down to is that uh, Treasury has been holding on to the idea that it's not legally required to abide by the Administrative Procedure Act's requirements on things like notice and comment, but it, it nevertheless does so voluntarily. The observers that I spoke to also said that, well, I should say some of them said that it seemed to establish a pretty clear departure from past IRS and Treasury practices on things like the use of temporary regulations. A few others that I spoke with, however, said that if you kind of stare at it really closely, there's not a whole lot that's really new here. Now, are some of these changes related to the new OIRA process? Yes, Dave, I want to focus in on one of the four main points that Jonathan was mentioning in particular, the good cause statement when issuing temporary regs. Historically, temporary regs were used quite frequently by the IRS and Treasury to issue guidance that was immediately effective. With this policy statement, as well as some litigation we've seen out there, we've had predictions that you're not going to be seeing many temporary regs in the future from the IRS and Treasury. This notably came from Bill Wilkins, the former chief counsel of the IRS for many years. This would all relate to trying to avoid 
further litigation on APA violations for failure of notice and comment, which Jonathan just alluded to. But despite this prediction, very recently, we did see temporary regs and a good cause exception to allow the issuance of those temporary regs with the Section 245 Cap A dividends received deduction guidance. When you look at the draft version of the regs that went to OIRA versus the publicly released version of those regs, you will see a substantial redrafting of the good cause exception portion of the preamble there. Now, the underlying arguments, those don't change as much, but just the way they present it to the reader, that changes quite a bit. This guidance deals with Treasury's new anti-abuse rule on the dividends received deduction to address a timing mismatch between the participation exemption regime and guilty. In promulgating the anti-abuse rule, Treasury and the IRS identified a gap between when guilty applies and when the Section 245 Cap A dividend received deduction applies, with the participation exemption applying after January 1st, 2018, and guilty not applying until after the first year ending after December 31st, 2017. So this would come into play with fiscal year taxpayers. Under the rule, the amount ineligible for the deduction is the sum of 50% of the dividends attributable to earnings and profits from a related party transactions after the measurement date under Section 965A2, during which guilty did not apply. This is referred to as the extraordinary disposition amount and the dividends attributable to E&P during the tax year ending after December 31st, 2017, in which the domestic corporation reduces CFC ownership. This is referred to as the extraordinary reduction amount. In explaining the issuance of the temporary regs, the good cause exception in the preamble invokes impracticability if they were to provide notice of this rule without making it immediately effective. They envision increasing the financial manipulation that the rule is meant to prevent. There's other rationale as well. I'm going to quote from the preamble now. It says, good cause may also apply where a delayed effective date would have a significant deleterious effect upon the parties to which the regulation applies. Additionally, the good cause exception may apply when the regulations are by their nature short term and there is an opportunity to comment before the rules are introduced. Finally, good cause is supported where regulations are required to be issued and effective by a certain statutory deadline. This whole section, as I said, was substantially rewritten in the final version of the regs that were put out there. Practitioners have predicted we're going to see litigation on this reg, and others have predicted that the good cause statement is wanting. So I wouldn't be surprised to see this attacked further in the future. All right. Well, I always like to end on looking forward to future litigation or something we can talk about again. So we'll end it there. Jonathan, Andrew, thank you for being here. It's my pleasure. Thank you, Dave. And now, coming attractions. Each week, we preview commentary that will be appearing in the Tax Notes magazines. I'm joined by Content and Acquisitions Manager Faye McRae. Faye, what will you have for us? Coming up in Tax Notes Federal, Ari Glogauer and David Kamen argue that the TCJA's disparate rates for individuals and corporations create an incentive for some high-income business owners to switch to using corporations, especially if those taxpayers don't qualify for the pass-through deduction. Also, Alan Vallard contends that the TCJA's suspension of tax relief for moving employee business expenses is misinformed base broadening because it violates the tax policy principle that the cost of earning income should be deductible. In Tax Note State, Andrew Yates and Matthew Hedstrom discussed the tax implications of reward programs, how state courts have dealt with them, and why bundled consideration is the ideal way to handle their tax treatment. Annette Nellen delves into the first of five areas of 2019 technology news 
to highlight tax issues and opportunities presented by these developments. In Tax Notes International, Nathan Boydman and Michael Kandev discuss Canada's ratification of the OECD's multilateral instrument and its effect for Canada. Alexandra Ball evaluates new EU rules to harmonize and simplify the VAT consequences of call-off stock arrangements. You can read all that and a lot more in the July 22nd editions of Tax Notes Federal, State, and International. That's it for this week. You can follow me online at taxstew, that's S-T-E-W. If you have any comments, questions, or suggestions for a future episode, you can email us at podcast at taxanalyst.org. And as always, if you like what we're doing here, please leave a rating or review wherever you download this podcast. We'll be back next week with another episode of Tax Notes Talk. Tax Notes Talk is a production of Tax Notes. You can learn more about us by visiting www.taxnotes.com backslash products. When major media wants the straight story, they turn to Tax Notes. Thank you for listening and join us again for another edition of Tax Notes Talk. Tax Analyst Inc. does not provide tax advice or tax preparation services. Nothing in the podcast constitutes legal, accounting, or tax advice. A full disclaimer is included in the transcript.